Hi, Sarah here. I'm one of the co-hosts of Female Founders Weekly, and this episode is sponsored by my company, Hostel Pass. Hostel Pass is a digital discount card for the best of European travel, especially the best hostels. I started this company after my own travels, where I was on a really tight budget, which meant I ended up in some pretty horrible accommodation situations. That's why I spent the next six years finding and partnering with the best hostels all across Europe, the kinds of places that travelers and their parents would feel good about. We've now got hundreds of hostels on our platform and we've managed to secure exclusive discounts and bonuses like free welcome drink, late checkout, or free breakfast at every single hostel. We don't just have hostels on Hostel Pass. You can also find discounts on museums, walking tours, river cruises, food tours, e-sims, and so much more. If you're looking to join the thousands of travelers using Hostel Pass to save big on their trip, use code FFW at checkout to take 20% off your first year of membership. Check us out at hostelpass.co. That's H-O-S-T-E-L-P-A-S-S dot C-O. And code FFW for 20% off at checkout. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to another episode of Female Founders Weekly. I'm Sarah, and on today's episode, Alex and I interviewed Babs Nealon. Babs is the CEO and a lawyer at Jameson Law. She's qualified as a solicitor in England, Scotland, Ireland, New York, and California. She specializes in business law, and in this episode, we talk about everything you need to have in order from a legal side to start a company. This episode is geared a little bit more at the UK, so you might hear a couple of things like SEIS and Companies House. Those are UK-specific, but I do think this episode is invaluable for anyone looking to start a company. Before we get into the episode, I want to make it clear that the information provided in this episode is for general informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. Every situation is unique, and you should always consult with a qualified lawyer for specific legal advice tailored to your individual needs. Law is a topic that's near and dear to Alex's heart, so she leads this one. You'll hear from me a couple times here and there. So now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy, and let's get into the episode. Well, Babs, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks very much for having me on. It's great to be here. This is uh, something that's actually very close to my heart, something <laughs> I'm really passionate about. And something that, you know, was one of the catalysts for starting this podcast to begin with. I kind of want to frame the situation that I was in, which was a first time founder, a female founder. I had proved my product market fit. Yeah. And I knew I had like an actual business on my hands. <laughs> um, I was looking to raise some money. I knew how I was going to spend it. But the whole world was just slightly terrifying. I wanted to really put myself out there, but I wanted to make sure I was doing things in the right way. Yeah. So when raising money right from the very beginning, talk us through what we should be thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're thinking about raising money, you obviously have a lot of things from the business side to be thinking about. Your business plan, what your pitch deck's going to look like, all of that good stuff. And I'm not going to talk about any of that today. Um, what I'm going to talk about is the legal side and what you should be thinking about from a kind of due diligence perspective. So what will the investors be looking for? And the reason you want to think about that at an early stage in the business is because it, it can it can cost a lot if you leave it till the end. Um, it can severely downgrade the kind of level of investment that you're going to attract, the value of your business. You could end up in conversation with investors for six months rather than a month. So it becomes really, really important to have a think about what will an investor want to see? What will they ask for? 
from a legal perspective, what should my business be able to show them from an early stage and have that ready to go so that when you're ready to go for investment, there's less things to worry about. So what kind of things do investors ask? Like, what are they going to be looking for? Whole host of different things from a legal perspective. So we first of all want to think about things like contracts. So what your client contracts look like, if you have any T's and C's, if you've not started trading yet, they'll want to know that you've got an idea of that kind of thing. Um, if you have staff, a lot of the a lot of the time, early startups won't have staff. But if they do, do they have contracts in place with them? If you started handling personal data, do you understand GDPR? What have you done about that? Do you have processes in place to deal with that? Um, what does your corporate structure look like? So have you filed everything at company's house that you were meant to? If you have a business partner, do you have a shareholders agreement in place? Um, and what steps have you taken to protect your IP? So things like your trademarks the copyright in things that you are producing as part of your business. Um, and then easy things that people forget about. So things like, have you registered with the Information Commissioner's Office for GDPR? Have you taken out the right insurance? All those kind of things. They look at everything. They take a kind of high level view at the whole business and see if there are any issues that they need to address. Really interesting. I think some of those um, like GDPR and compliance things kept coming through the post and I thought they were scams for ages. <laughs> I kept ignoring them until I did some proper research. So um, lesson learned there. These things are really important. <laughs> okay, so let's break it down a bit more. Let's kind of go through those things. Okay. If, I, if I want to start those investor conversations, I want to have all those kind of legal ducks in a row, yeah. right? We want those to be the easy questions. Yeah. Tick, 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 tick. And then yeah. you can get back to kind of telling your story um, and talking about your business. Start at the top. What are some of the first things I should start doing? So you first of all want to make sure that the business has been set up properly. And by that, I mean, have you registered with the Information Commissioner's Office like we just spoke about? By the way, everyone thinks it's a scam. So it's, it's actually one time. Please don't ignore the letter. They need to sort that out. <laughs> have you got your insurance in place and have you made the right filings at Companies House? So have you been filing annual returns? Have you been filing accounts on time? Is, is Companies House up to date? You have no idea how many investee companies I've had a look at. And, you know, they, they, they've got a business partner, but it doesn't show on Companies House or the number of shares that they think that they've promise to consultants aren't showing on company's house and that kind of thing what that tells an investor is a there's a tidy up mission here and b this founder doesn't really 100% know what they're doing which which isn't great so that's the first steps that you should really be taking is the structure there the way it should be and um, what about sweat equity that's something that people kind of verbally get involved with in the beginning is that something that people need to be um, sorting out before they start speaking to investors? 100%. This is a big, big problem. Um, sweat equity should be documented, first of all. You should have a contract with the consultant, the contractor that's that's agreed to take on sweat equity. But it also needs to be documented at Companies House. Um, you, you would honestly shudder the amount of people that just say, yeah, here you go, you've got 5% of my business. And even from the perspective, if we take this out of the investment round conversation for a second, even from the perspective of the consultant, the contractor who's providing you with that, they don't have anything. They, they don't have anything. They're just providing services really for nothing because they've got nothing in writing and it's not showing anywhere that they actually own a stake in the business. That's a big issue. Um, and the last thing an investor wants to think is, okay, well, I'm going to put in this amount of money for this amount of equity. Oh, there's some hidden secret shareholder that has a claim over the business because they were promised something and we've got to deal with that down the line. So if you are taking on consultants and promising sweat equity, have a contract in place with them and make sure 
the amount of shares that they are owed is showing on Companies House. Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of people just want to keep it nice and easy to begin with, but it gets a lot harder in the end um, if you don't deal with those kind of even sometimes uncomfortable conversations early on. Absolutely. Totally agree. I want to ask about insurance because that was something that I didn't think I needed for a really long time. I mean, I just I had a website. um, I sold bras. I made sure they passed all the relevant checks, but I didn't really understand why I needed insurance. Yeah, so the reason you want insurance is is for your own protection most of the time. Um, if you have staff, it's a legal requirement that you have employer's liability insurance. So that's just like, that's not it is for your protection, but it, you have to do it because it's a legal requirement. Um, the other insurances are optional, but they are highly advisable. Because if something goes wrong, if there's a problem with one of the bras that you're selling, or if you're a service provider, if you provide maybe like a SaaS product, something like that, and you don't have professional indemnity cover in place, you don't have product liability insurance for selling products online. If you're sued, you could be sued for some unlimited amount that you're ins- you don't have insurance coverage to deal with. And they, they, it could potentially bankrupt your business from one claim. So that's why it becomes really, really important. And is that true only if I have an actual employee? Do I need to do that if I'm just using freelancers or contractors? For employers liability insurance, yes. Um, if you're using contractors in the sense of kind of third party website companies or something like that, then no, you wouldn't need it. But if you're taking on someone who's like a self-employed person providing services, then absolutely you do. Um, pro- uh, professional indemnity li- liability insurance and public liability insurance, product liability insurance, all of those are regardless of whether you have staff or not. They're to protect you from being sued, essentially. So all of those insurances that you mentioned sound a little bit daunting because it makes me think I might have to look in a whole bunch of different places to find the right thing for me. Are there places you recommend or or ways to cover yourself completely just sort of as a one-stop shop? Yeah, I would try, particularly for a small business, if you can, to get some sort of package. Um, A lot of the time, insurance companies will sell kind of employer's liability with public liability together, and it's not very expensive. Professional indemnity insurance, if you're a service provider, you need. If you're a product provider, you don't really, um, but you might need to pay for that separately. Uh, in that case, I, I normally tell small businesses to have a look at simplybusiness.com. Um, they're a really good provider. They cover kind of lots of different insurance providers and they tend to be quite good value for money. If you need something a bit more specialist, if you're doing something a bit different, I would go to Hiscox, so H-I-S-C-O-X. They're a big company based in the UK and they're they're really good. They're they're the most adaptable to kind of the new different types of businesses that we've been seeing coming out of the woodwork. And what about stock insurance? I basically put my entire life savings in buying a whole bunch of bras and then I trusted a warehouse to store them and ship them for me. Um, looking back, could have been slightly naive. <laughs> um, imagine if they were all water damaged or something, even if it wasn't malpractice. Yeah. Um, so that will depend on what your contract says with the warehouse provider. It will either say that they will insure the products on your behalf or you have to take out your own insurance. Whatever it says is kind of what you have to do. So if they've got their own insurance, you, you don't need to take any out. But if they don't and they've said it's your responsibility, then 100% take out insurance. Okay, moral of the story is basically get insurance <laughs> for every part of your business because if you do face legal action, especially as a small business when you're you know, not profitable in the early months or you're really cash strapped and lean, 
that could just break you absolutely. without even being able to get going. Yeah, absolutely. And that would be heartbreaking. You know, it's actually then got nothing to do with what you're providing. Um, yeah. You know, it's just almost a technicality. So on to the account side of thing, the finance kind of thing. Yeah. What do I need to have in place? As early as you can afford, I would speak to a really decent accountant. Someone who understands your business and will speak to you monthly, do kind of like monthly monthly reporting with you. So you understand your costs when you start revenue generating, you understand where that money has come from. Um, it's the smartest thing I ever did in my business. And I think it's the smartest thing that, that most business owners can do. They should deal with your annual accounts. And ideally, they should have management accounts. Now, not all small businesses will have that, but that's monthly, quarterly accounts where you can kind of see more quickly what's happening. Annual accounts are, are a legal requirement. An investor will ask to see those. But if you do have management accounts a month or two months out of date, they are very beneficial as well. So I would definitely do that. For small businesses, some sort of accounting software is great. Um, we use Zero. I think Zero is really user friendly, but a lot of people like QuickBooks, that kind of thing. And I know a lot of people ask, but I spent my own personal money in the beginning on the business. How do I account for that? Sort of where is that kept and will investors care about that? Yeah, so it depends. Again, speak to your accountant. It depends how that's been accounted for. So that might be a director's loan that you've made. You might have decided you put this money into the business. It's quite quite a tax efficient way to deal with it because it means if you then want to take money out of the business, you're just repaying a loan. You don't have to pay any tax on it. Um, yes, investors will want to see that. They will want to know that that is documented. They'll want to know about it. If you've put 10 grand into your business and investors come in, don't know about it and then all of a sudden find out about it they're not going to be very happy um they could potentially argue that you breached the terms of your your investment paperwork because you didn't disclose it so all of that should be documented somewhere even if it just shows in your accounts that there's a loan sitting on the books um that's really really important yeah you need to be upfront about that kind of stuff where do i need to be storing my shareholders agreement things like that um in terms of things like if you're putting contracts in place or shareholders agreements that kind of thing all of that should just be stored um, in like a secure drive on a company-owned laptop and obviously back it up in case something bad happens. Um, but that kind of stuff doesn't need to be filed anywhere. It, these are kind of internal private documents, so just keep them safe. Okay, so I've got all my company's house filings. I've got all my accounts together. I've got all my shareholders agreements together. I've got myself some good business insurance. <laughs> um and I've made sure that any director's loans, that any money I've given the business mm -hmm. is accounted for and the investors would be aware of it. What's next? What what other kind of things would they ask for legally? So that's all you're kind of set up. Make sure you've done everything from the start properly kind of thing. And if you've not done it properly from the start, go back and fix it now. It's never too late. Then you want to think about things as you're moving forward. So as you're kind of growing and scaling the business, what do you need to be worried about? And the first thing I would say to people is to think about your intellectual property. Now, a lot of the time, this is an afterthought, not with software providers. They seem to be pretty hot on it, but other business providers can see intellectual property as a bit of an afterthought. So you want to think about things here like copyright trademarks. So if you have brand name, product name, a logo, that kind of thing, you want to get that trademarked in the countries that you plan to be active in in the near future. So that for a lot of businesses that I speak to, that will be UK, EU, US as a starting point. Um, there's there's vicious rumours that trademarking is hideously expensive. 
It can be if you want to trademark all across the world. But just to give you an example, to trademark your brand in the UK might only cost you two to three hundred pounds. So that is not a lot of money to protect your brand, to stop someone coming along in six months time saying, oh, no, I actually have a similar business. I've trademarked my business um, and you have to change your name. Then when investors come along, one of the big things they'll be looking for is that you have a monopoly to use your name, that you properly own the branding that you're putting yourself out into the market with. If you don't own it, i.e. you don't have a trademark, that's going to cause them serious concern. Um, and now it might be that whatever you have for whatever reason isn't trademarkable and that's fine and you explain that to an investor, but in most cases it will be um, and they'll wonder why you haven't taken those steps. So that's the trademark side. There's also the copyright side. That is protecting anything you've created. So in a software context, it's your software platform and source code. If you are producing designs of something, it's the things you've designed. It could be the design of a product. It could be the design of a digital product, anything like that. That's your copyright. And so what you should have done here is add the appropriate disclaimers to things, saying that this is your property, no one can copy it. And if you have a website running, you should have website terms and conditions that state within them that anything they find on their website on this website is your copyright. They, they can buy it from you, but they can't copy it. They can't transfer it to third parties, that kind of thing. So investors will really be looking at what steps you've taken to protect the intellectual property in your business and is it sufficient? And did all of this get more difficult after Brexit? Um, only in terms of protecting your trademarks. So previously you could file an EU trademark and it would have covered the UK. It doesn't now. So yes, it's a bit more expensive. You have to put in a UK application and an EU application. So it might cost you an extra two to three hundred pounds. But that's kind of as as complex as it gets. I don't want to just move straight on to the next point <laughs> after IP because IP was my number one question. I was always asked yeah. and it completely took me by surprise. Yeah. And I was completely ill-prepared for the question for the first conversation I ever had. I kind of mastered my way through the, the following conversations and then I crafted something. I mean, I went out to business mentors and got some real advice on how to answer it because it was without fail, always asked, yeah. and um, something that I need to have a really good answer to because I was really surprised how much they thought it would be um, the difference between an, a deal or no deal, really. Um, yeah. they, they, they could love everything else you're doing, but if they don't feel like you're protected properly, they think that you're going to catch the eye of one of the big guys and then they're just going to steal it from under you. And to be honest, why would you invest your dollars in that? Absolutely. Like, for instance, if you were selling bras you should be also taking advantage of the design rights system, which you have in the UK and the EU as well. Um, and that is kind of, if, if your bras have a particular design that are quite different and unique and you don't want anyone else to pinch it, kind of any of the any of the big boys to come along and copy what you're doing, you should be taking advantage of that as well. Um, but you're completely right. Intellectual property is a massive area. If you think about it, that is the real thing that the investor is putting their money in. It's your idea. So it's what steps have you taken to protect that idea? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really, really important one. Um, okay, so IP, tick. tick. Um, talk to me a bit about kind of contracts. What what contracts do I need in place? So this will totally depend on how you are transacting and, and whether whether you're taking orders on your website or whether you are a service provider that's providing a bespoke software solution, that kind of thing. 
it'll totally depend. But at the end of the day, everyone needs a client contract once you're starting to trade. So if you are e-commerce, if you're selling over a website, it'll be terms and conditions. Customers will tick a box to say that they accept your terms. Um, if it's a more bespoke service, you might send them a contract that is tailored to them and they sign it. Um, electronic signing is fine. We, we're not in the days anymore of printing, signing and scanning back in, although some people like it. Um, at the end of the day, it's your client contract. So it's what protects you and protects your client. Um, it sets out your obligations, their obligations, when they make payment, what happens if they don't pay, um, how long they're locked into the contract term for. That's something investors are really, really interested in. Um, a lot of the time with service providers, investors won't be interested if all their clients can just walk away next month if they feel like it. Um, so so that's that's really, really important. So your client contract, T's and C's, however you structure it, is the most important document. Then we want to think about your suppliers. So do you have huge suppliers to your business that if if you know if they weren't there, the world would end and you wouldn't be able to run your business? And um, that's something that you, that you should be thinking about and documenting. If, for instance, you produce products, you'll have manufacturers um, that you'll want to make sure are tied down and that are also protecting your IP and your confidentiality at the same time. All of that will be documented. If you go to investors, say, I don't have any client contracts, but yeah, they said they'll sign up um, and, and I don't have any supplier agreements, but yeah, they supply me fine and they have done for the last six months, so it's fine. They're not going to be impressed. They're going to expect terms properly documented and knowing how long that you're locked in with these contracts for yeah absolutely and these are am I right in thinking these are things you need to have together but they're not it doesn't come as like a pack you would send to an investor this is something that you just need ready to go as soon as they ask these questions absolutely so when an investor is interested they'll start to take a deep dive into your business they'll look for a data room to be made available to them, which a lot of the time for startups is really just throwing everything you have in a Google Drive, to be honest. Um, but they will want to open the bonnet of the car up and look inside and see what's there. So your contract now, if you've got one set of T's and C's that everyone accepts, it might just be one document. But if you have 10 clients on 10 different contracts, they'd expect that all to be saved in that drive and they'll have a look at it and, and make sure that they're happy with the terms. That's why a lot of the time when people are kind of pinching documents from online it doesn't actually protect them much more than having nothing at all because at the end of the day the investor wants to know you've taken this stuff seriously and that both parties have the right obligations to each other and that they're happy to invest on that basis and they they really ask these questions I mean they'd go down to checking you paid your tax on time I mean is tax an important issue yeah absolutely again get a great accountant who'll remind you and annoy you until you pay your tax but yeah I mean no investor is going to want to invest thinking oh all my money is going to go towards their tax bill that they didn't pay so yeah that's that's a biggie for sure um any last points before we kind of sum up everything you need to get ready um I would just say lastly if you've started trading and you're starting to take things like personal data, which you probably will if you're accepting orders. So things like names, contact email addresses, potentially home addresses if you're sending things out. That is really, really important. Um, you should have a privacy policy on your website that sets out what you collect, why you need it, what you do with it, if you share it with any third parties. And you should get help to make sure that your privacy policy is, is correct for your business. As you grow and scale, there will be other GDPR documents that you have to take into account for your business. So they will cover things like your employees' procedures, what they have to do, 
in order to make sure you're processing personal data lawfully. But that's kind of as you go further down the line. I think something that we haven't touched upon in the employment sector is pensions. And I think that that's come to a surprise to a lot of people when they're employing people for the first time that they actually have to enroll them in a pension plan. Um, I was wondering if you could speak about that briefly. Yeah, of course. So with employments, there's a few there, there's a few things you need to think about. Now, this only really applies if these are actual employees, so not contractors, no one on sweat equity, that kind of thing. It is a legal requirement to have an employment contract in place with them. So you have to have that. It doesn't need to be anything special, but you do need to have terms of employment. Um, and they should be being paid on payroll. So you're taking PAYE from them, national insurance. Again, and a good accountant can help with all of this. But then, yes, lastly, it is a legal requirement after they've hit a certain amount of kind of hours and pay with you that you are auto enrolling them um, into a pension scheme. Again, your accountant should be able to help with that if you have a good one. Um, but it is a legal requirement. So it's something to definitely be aware of. Is there a difference between my company hiring an employee and having a legal obligation to provide them with a pension and me as the director? Technically, if you're employed as a director, you should be getting paid into your pension fund as well, technically. At the end of the day, you would have to sue you if you think about it. If you don't do this right, you as a director would have to sue you as a founder. Um, so like, it's really bad, but I don't, have a, I don't have my pension set up for my company because I just haven't done it. And the risk is I would sue myself. Yes, legally you should do it, but probably bottom of the pile, to be honest. Okay, but as an employee, I still fall under that category. I think um, it's really easy to get confused about the distinct, the you know, the difference between being a director and working for your company, and but not being an employee. Lots of people aren't actually even taking a salary from the company, so it's. It can get a bit confusing, that whole sort of situation. Yeah, I mean, but definitely that would only apply if you are taking a salary from the company. So if you're not taking a salary or if you're taking almost like a like a subcontractor payment, um, so you're just taking a gross amount and you're just kind of informing HMRC at the end of the year and paying your tax as a self-employed person, then there would be no obligation to pay into a pension fund. But as soon as you go on payroll, as soon as you're paying... PAYE, national insurance, then yes, you would, you should be paying into a pension fund. Okay, so we have covered <laughs> um, the company's house side of things, making sure your IT is in order, making sure you've got appropriate insurance, contracts, you're complying with everything you need to comply in your local area, making sure that you're filing your accounts, you've got record of your accounts and any director's loans, making sure in those filings that you're listing your assets and liabilities, your IP, super, super important, <laughs> contracts in place with suppliers, clients, anyone relevant, employers and pensions, tax and data protections. Yeah. Just a short list. Just, Just a short few list. things to take you 50 minutes. <laughs> Just a short list. But the thing to, to really bear in mind is that none of this is meant to be overwhelming. So this is essentially meant to be a to-do list. You do not need to have all of this in place by tomorrow. It's a to-do list to work through that I'd suggest you pick off a couple of things a month. Not all of them are big things and with a lot of them you should get legal help with. So yeah, don't let it overwhelm you. Just take it as a, this is my to-do list and this is what I'll be working through. Yeah, absolutely. I joke, but they're all really important. And, you know, if you just 
start with a good foundation, making sure you're filing those contracts as they come in. Hopefully it doesn't end up being a really overwhelming task. And like you said, it's never too late to go back and put those things in place. Um, And then you've got everything you need to going forward. And then you can start the fun stuff, which is actually talking to investors about your business and you don't even need to worry about any of it. Well, that's the thing. Like, think about this. This is like an overwhelming to-do list at the moment. Imagine you had an investor you were speaking to next week and he was looking for all of this stuff to be in place in a week. That's when it becomes a bit overwhelming. So get it on the to-do list now and just work through it all. And it'll just make the whole process easier. Like, you don't need to stress about putting it in place. You don't need to pay over the odds and legal fees because you've done it over time and you've done it at a manageable pace. Um, And it's also not going to chip away at the value of your business or the value that investors are willing to invest because they found something that that isn't quite right. So it really does does make sense to kind of plan and work through it. Yeah, absolutely. I came to a point in my investment journey where I thought, actually, if I was going to invest my savings into something, what would I want to know? How would I want to feel and how would I want them to sort of answer my questions? And it seems really simple and obvious when you think about it that way. But I don't think a lot of people do because um, for a lot of founders, it can feel like a real power imbalance, um, you know, essentially asking for someone to invest in your in your business. But um, you know, if you were to invest your money and you were asking about their trademarks or their accounts, you know, imagine if they said, oh, don't know, haven't filed it, made a joke out of it. You know, this is serious stuff. So I think it's just about making sure that those bits are, are, are ticked off and you're presenting yourself in a professional way that, that you understand your business and you're on top of it. Absolutely. At the end of the day, that investor wants to know their money is safe and they take a risk. They know that not every investment will pay out and they know they, they, they know that, but they don't want that to happen because you weren't on top of it and because they couldn't trust you. And having all this, having your legal ducks in a row shows that investor that you are trustworthy. So any big takeaways that you'd love people to remember, if nothing else? <laughs> the big takeaway is always just get it on a list and work through it. Don't let it overwhelm you. and and reach out for legal and accountancy advice as and when you need it that is super important um and and work with someone who will work with you on a fixed fee who will explain things to you who doesn't kind of leave you high and dry because as as a founder that's what you need you you don't need to be throwing thousands of this you just need somebody who can kind of take you by the hand and explain what you need Thank you so much. I think we want to be all about transparency here. Do you have an estimate of what first time founders should be anticipating paying for these kinds of things, even if that's a range? Yeah, it depends what they need. I think to get all your legal stuff sorted, you could be looking to pay two to three grand, probably over time. But that would include things like your trademarks, your client contracts, employment contracts, supplier agreements. It'll depend what you need. For instance, if you don't have an employees, you don't need an employment contract. Um, if your business model is really simple, your client contract is going to look much slimmer than a than a more complex business. But roughly two to three grand, which is why I'm saying let's spread it over a period of time. Yeah, no, that's a great estimate. And obviously, like you said, it really depends on the business. Yeah. But knowing two to three thousand is reasonable, um, I think stops a lot of founders being taken advantage of. Um, there's such an asymmetry of information in starting a business and I know so many people that have unfortunately hasn't gone their way Um, and then you can also frame that in context if you're planning on raising SEIS 150 grand although is it going up is it not going up we never really know what's going on anymore (laughs) Um, but if you're looking at raising 150 grand um, or more um, you know two or three really is a palatable amount 
to make sure that you can raise your SEIS or EIS and beyond. So thank you so much, Babs. Honestly, what a great overview, giving everyone their checklist. Um, And I hope to kind of dive into some of those a bit more, some of those real key pain points for a lot of founders. Thank you so much for your time. No problem at all. Thank you so much for having me. I hope this has been really helpful. Um, And yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much, Babs. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Female Founders Weekly. Female Founders Weekly was created by myself, Sarah Weingust, the founder of Hostel Pass, and Alex Plethero, founder of Freedom Underwear. You can find us on Instagram at Female Founders Weekly, on TikTok at Female Founders Weekly, and with any questions, you can email us at femalefoundersweekly at gmail.com. Thanks for joining. Bye.